Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again as we wrap up our series, Probable Cause, uh, week three. Uh, Over the past couple of weeks, we've been making the case that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually recorded books of history. Um, The significance of these books is that each one of them accounts the life and the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. And if you were to take any one of these books on their own, you might be able to say that they were fable or that they were fairy tale or that they had been made up in some way. But the reason that these books are to be taken seriously is they have been, uh, throughout the ages, there's four of them. There's not just one, there's four accounts. Um, What we have is indisputable. We have these four accounts of the Gospels, documents purported to have been written during the time of Christ in the first century, not long at all after the death of Jesus. All of them telling us the same story about one Jewish carpenter uh, from the the region of Judea. Uh, What we have in these Gospels is more information about a Jewish carpenter than we have about the first and second century Roman emperors of the day. In this series, we've talked about the works called the Gallic Wars. We've talked about the works of a man named Tacitus. Uh, These two writers or these two sets of histories are uh, really considered to be beyond uh, reproach when it comes to uh, their accuracy and their uh, need to be taken seriously. And we've established that when it comes to the Gospels, we have more copies and more manuscripts, better copies and earlier copies than we have in Roman history from Tacitus and from the Gallic Wars during that time. And yet today, in the world in which we live, people want to take some cheap shots at the Bible. And they want to, they want to raise suspicion. They want to raise this idea that maybe the Bible shouldn't be taken seriously um, But here's the thing that I keep talking about uh, when it comes to to the Bible. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is a compilation of many books, 66 to be exact, and and several different authors of those books. And as Christians, our faith really doesn't hinge on the entire Bible. Our faith really hinges on the four books that we've been looking at in this series, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because if what they say is true, then Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then what he says about God is true and what he says about the Old and New Testament are true. If these four books are a reliable uh, representation of our faith uh, in Christ, then then we can take Jesus uh, seriously and we can know that what we believe about him is grounded in history. And yet, as we came through school, in college, some of these books got discounted. The argument goes something like this. Surely you don't believe that. Surely you don't believe uh, that, that what's written in those with all that supernatural stuff, surely you don't believe that that's true history and that that's something that should be taken seriously. You know, people look in there and they see supernatural things and they have a bias against that. So immediately they dismiss it and they, uh, you know, just put it away and they, they talk about them as if they are some religious book that shouldn't be taken seriously. Um, and they would say, I can't believe that Jesus lived, and I can't believe that Jesus said and did the things that these books say that he did. But for anyone who takes this view, there is a problem. They can't allow for these books to have been written in the first century when we claim they were written. 
because these books were written in a time and in a region when there were eyewitnesses to either um, uh, dispute what was being said or to um, agree with what was being said. Um, if these books are a plot, if they're a hoax of some kind, some deviation from the truth, it would have never survived the scrutiny of the last 2,000 years without something to substantiate it. So skeptics have to move to a different story, and the story that they come up with is that these books really weren't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, their idea is that some years later, uh, several generations later, as many as two or 250 years later, maybe as early as 100, 150 years later, that someone else wrote these books. And they knew that they would never be taken seriously, written by the people who wrote them, so they select names out of history that, that uh, would be well-known, names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they put those names on the books so that they would be taken seriously, but they weren't written in the first century. They were written many, many years after the fact. But the skeptic would, would clearly say these books were not written in the same generation that these events took place. Uh, these events were written many, many years later, and they are a compilation of myth and legend and folklore. But here is your problem if you're someone who takes that approach. There is overwhelming evidence that these stories, especially the story of the resurrection of Jesus, was clearly in circulation during the, the time of these men and clearly in circulation during a time when people would have been able to be eyewitnesses and come forward and say, hey, I either saw it or I didn't see it, I believe it or I didn't believe it. Um, these things are written uh, during a time when people could have come forth and, and been an eyewitness to them. So here's the truth. These books were written at a time when Jewish authorities would have done anything to put down the notion of a resurrection, and they would have done anything to produce a body to make sure that that story didn't go forward. They would have said, we can stop all this resurrection talk right now. Here's the dead body of Jesus. Don't say another thing about the resurrection. He's dead. Move on. These books were written at a time when the Roman government would have had every reason to put down some notion that Jesus had risen from the dead, and they would have had the resources uh, to, to squash any kind of talk of a resurrection of Christ. And yet, under the Roman government and in the presence of Jewish leaders, Christianity was born and Christianity flourished. What you read in the Gospels was not fabricated over several generations uh, and written down. And it is the very same stories that fuel, th these are the stories that fueled the whole fire of Christianity in the first century. Uh, and, and it happened while there were many eyewitnesses. So today, real quick, I want to take a look at three men uh, three people who will help us make the case that the stories within the gospel accounts were not stories that were made up some years later, but were instead written uh, contemporary to the time that the events took place uh, when eyewitnesses were still alive and could have come forth to, to have, you know, you could have talked to them and they could have said it's either true or not true. And the first person I want to look at this morning is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a Jewish man who was deeply steeped in Judaism and he came to embrace faith in Jesus and Christianity. And what we know about Paul is that he wrote many letters. He established a lot of churches throughout uh, the Holy Land and, and Europe. And just let me say this, there are a number of extremely compelling reasons why I believe the story of Jesus, but chief among them is the life 
of Paul for me. I, I just, when you consider Paul's life and you consider what he went through, the extensive travel that he went through, who he was before his conversion, all of that comes to bear for me and really bolsters and strengthens my faith in Jesus. Now, when I reference Paul like that, here's the pushback that I know I'm going to get from somebody. Well, Brett, you're just using the Bible to substantiate the Bible. You're using the Bible to prove the Bible. Let me make this very important distinction this morning. I'm not talking about the Bible. The Bible that you have in your hands or the Bible that you have on your shelf at home was put together sometime about 350 years after the resurrection of Jesus. What we're talking about are ancient manuscripts. We've been talking about Greek texts that would have been circulated during the first century, and those Greek texts and those manuscripts were assembled some 300 to 350 years after the time of Christ and collected and put into what you would call today your Bible. So no, I'm not using the Bible to substantiate the Bible. Here's what we know as fact. There was a man named Paul. He was a Jew. He, he never saw the resurrected Christ in bodily form. He was not an eyewitness to the events. Paul abandoned Judaism. He didn't just abandon Judaism. He abandoned a life work for him, which was to have become a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a very good Pharisee. In fact, he was very zealous. He participated in the persecution and the execution of Christians before his uh, conversion to Christ. He gave his whole life after his conversion to the planting of churches, and he wrote a bunch of letters, many of which we have today. So Paul is a man who lived during the time of Christ, who believed in the teaching and the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus. And so here's the question that you have to answer. How did he find out about this stuff? How did he find out about Jesus? How did he know about a resurrection? What, where would he have heard this? If it was something that, as we are to be led to, to believe that these things were made up some generations later, how would someone like Paul in the first century have known about Jesus and the resurrection if the skeptics are right and these things were written about many, many years later? Why on earth would, a, uh, would he believe a, uh, that a Jewish carpenter from the region of Judea claimed to be the son of God, the savior of mankind and rose from the dead. Where did he hear something like that? If the stories weren't created for two generations while we're here, just let me throw this in scholars and historians, even in the secular community agree that the, and this is very, very important. The writings of Paul are earlier than the writings of the gospels. You say, Brett, what does that mean? It means that the Apostle Paul was writing letters about Christianity to Christians before we even have documented copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is significant. But where did he get that information? And the answer is this. These stories and, and the miracles and the teachings and the resurrection of Jesus were clearly being circulated when he wrote these letters that he wrote to the churches. How else would he have known about them? So that's what we consider about Paul. Now let's talk about another man, and the person we'll talk about next is a guy named James. Now it is widely believed that James was the half-brother of Jesus. I happen to believe that James, the writer of the, the books that we have, the book we have in, in Scripture, was, was the half-brother of Jesus. But for the sake of this morning and this, this argument, let's, I'm just going to stipulate that that he wasn't the half-brother of Jesus. I'll, I'll concede that to anyone who wants to argue that. 
we know this much for certain. There was a man named James, and he claimed to be a Jew. We know that he abandoned Judaism and embraced Christianity, and we know that he wrote a, a, a letter to Jewish Christians who had been dispersed throughout uh, Europe. And we have copies of this letter, and the copies we have date all the way back to 45 to 50 AD. They can place that letter to have been written somewhere between the time of 45 to 50 AD. That would be just 15 or 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And you say, well, Brett, what does that prove? Well, it doesn't prove anything. Again, when it comes to history, you don't prove or disprove history. What you're looking at is you're looking at evidence. The, the evidence that is provided in that particular fact is that the story of Jesus, the information about the resurrection, things that would have caused first century people to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that information was available. Uh, this was not legend. This did not crop up uh, two generations later. How did James know that Jesus rose from the dead? In his letter, James says that he is waiting for the Lord to return. Now, here's the question. How did he know that Jesus had promised to return if that story was something that had been made up two or three generations after the fact? These men are men who clearly lived, and no one disputes this, men who lived during the time of Christ. They were not eyewitnesses necessarily to the resurrection of Jesus, but they were clearly contemporaries of Jesus, and they were early believers who gave up their lives for what they believed. The question is this, where did they get that information? And the evidence points to the fact that what we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is not only true, but that these stories that were being circulated in that region are likely had a, a massive influence on these men. And it isn't a stretch to think that James sat at the feet of someone like Matthew and listened to him teach. Um, we know that Mark spent a lot of time with Peter. It isn't a stretch to imagine that Paul spent time with someone like Peter, uh, that they knew each other, and that Paul and Peter would have had conversations, and Paul would have gained a lot of information from talking to someone the likes of Peter. These things would have happened in the first century, not 75 to 150, 200 years after the fact, as a skeptic would have you believe. But maybe the best and most convincing person I can talk about this morning is the third man that we're gonna consider as we think about this. And the third person that I wanna talk about really is not a Bible character or a Bible person at all. The third person is a Roman historian. I've been talking about him throughout this uh, series and his name is Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus wrote somewhere between the dates of 100 to 115 AD. And as we learned in week one, Tacitus and one other Roman historian are really responsible for the bulk of the Roman history that we have in our history books to this day. Um, they wrote extensively uh, in, in the first and second century about Roman history, and much of what we believe and much of what we have comes from these two sources. Uh, the emperor basically would have hired people to go out and write a history, and that historian would come in. He would go into the Roman archives. He would look into history and write things down. He would write about what was happening in the day as well, and he would write his history. So we have two major histories from first century Rome, and one of them is from this man, Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus is quoted all throughout your high school 
and college history books when it comes to the Roman Empire. Uh, the earliest manuscripts that we have about Tacitus are dated to about 900 AD, but no one disputes what the Gallic Wars and what Tacitus has to say about Roman history. When you hear people talk about Roman history uh, to this day, they're basically going on what they've learned from Tacitus and the Gallic Wars, and nobody really disputes what is, uh, is put forth in those documents. Uh, his assignment, Tacitus' assignment, was to put together these histories, and so he wrote 30 books, of which we have 14 or 15 uh, of those books, and we have those in two separate manuscripts. Uh, in one piece of one of those manuscripts, he's detailing what happened during the rule of a, an emperor named Nero. You may have heard of Nero. He was an emperor of Rome. Now, Nero ruled somewhere between the dates of 60, uh, from about 60 to 64 or 65 AD. So Tacitus, who again is writing sometime after that even, between the dates of 100 and 115 AD, Tacitus is not a Christian, he is not a Jew, and he is not even in Israel. Tacitus is in Rome writing a Roman history, and part of what he's writing about is Emperor Nero, who again ruled between 60 and 65 AD. He talks about how uh, Nero wanted a new Roman city, and so in order for you to have a new city, you have to dispose of the old city. And so what Nero did is he had the old city of Nero burned to the ground. Now, according to Tacitus, after he burned down the old Rome, he wanted to pin it on somebody so he would not have to shoulder that responsibility himself. So who did Nero pin the burning of Rome on? And the answer to that question is the Christians. This is secular history. This is not Bible history. This isn't Christian history. This is what secular history will tell you, that there was a man, an emperor named Nero, that he burned down Rome, and when it came time to place the blame on somebody, he decided to place the blame on Christians. Now let's just pause for a moment and think with me. That means that in secular history, 30 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus, there are enough Christians in the city of Rome, not in Israel, <laughs> in the city of Rome, there are enough Christians in Rome that they would have rec been recognized as a group or a sect large enough to be able to place the blame for this crime. Now you gotta just hit the brake right there and ask yourself the question, how did the message of Christianity get from Jerusalem to Rome in a matter of 30 years. Um, I, I did a little research this week, and what I learned is that as the crow flies, Rome lies about 1,430 miles from the city of Jerusalem. And again, the question is, how did Rome get the message of Christianity in such a way that dozens or hundreds or quite possibly thousands of Christian believers are found? These are Roman citizens. And now they have become Christians and they're living in the city of Rome. How did it travel so quickly and, and how did that message get out so quickly 30 years after the fact of the resurrection? If, if, the, if, you know, if we're to believe the skeptic that the books that we have, we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if we're to believe that they were written many years later, how did all this happened in Rome and how are all these Roman citizens now Christians if, if uh, this story wasn't written in the first century as we believe that it was? Where did that come from? And it all happened in a span of about 30 years. 
What it points back to is this, the story of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. This isn't something that developed over many, many, many years and was written about later. Within 30 years of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Roman citizens who are proclaiming Christ. Now, here's why that's significant. The Romans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Romans. The Romans never accepted Judaism as a primary form of religion. They hated the Jews and everything to do with them. And yet Tacitus tells us that by the time Nero is the emperor of Rome, there were so many Christians in the city that Nero is able to blame the burning of Rome on them. Here's why that's important. That takes the story and the resurrection of, of, of Jesus and it shoves it all the way back into the first century, just years after it took place. How long would it take a story a legend, a fable, to find a nucleus of people. Why in the world would they take it seriously? Why would they believe that? And yet, here's what we know from history. 30 years later, Christianity is a stronghold in Rome. So again, Tacitus is writing somewhere between 100 and 115 AD, and he's writing about the reign of Nero from 60 to 65 AD, and this is what Tacitus writes about Nero. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the people. So just stop right there. Tacitus is going to go back into history. He's going to go back into the archives. He's going to search through police records. And he learns that they rounded up Christians and they tortured them. He goes on. Christ from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. And when you read that, what you should read there is the word crucifixion. The extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now, this is major stuff. According to Tacitus, in the archives of Rome, there were records that said, oh yeah, there was actually a man named Jesus who lived in Judea, who was put to death in the most extreme way. In fact, uh, the Romans had him crucified. Um, Tacitus is saying Jesus was a real person, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, which is exactly what we believe the Gospels tell us. Tacitus goes on. He refers to Christianity and the resurrection as a most mischievous superstition, which is fascinating. Tacitus, according to Roman history, with all of his uh, archives at his disposal, um, you know, this isn't Christian history, this isn't Jewish people, this is just the history of what happened in Judea. Tacitus called Christianity and the resurrection a mischievous superstition. Now, hit the brakes with me again, and let's think together. He's not calling it a mischievous teaching. He's not calling it a mischievous philosophy. He calls it a mischievous superstition. What is a superstition? Uh, a superstition is a belief that something very strange or very odd happened. Tacitus is pointing to this thing that held Christianity together, the resurrection, the one thing that everybody rallied around, and he isn't pointing to a teaching and he's not pointing to a philosophy. The thing that brought people out of the woodwork and caused them to embrace Christianity was the resurrection of Jesus. He goes on, thus checked for the moment, which means it went away. Um, 
you know, that after they crucified Christ, they thought to themselves, game over. You know, I mean, it's over. Jesus is gone. It's over. Thus, checked for the moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. And here's why that is important, because the Bible tells us about that. When Jesus rose from the dead, do you know what he told his disciples? Here's what he didn't tell the disciples. He didn't tell them, hey, go tell everybody that you've seen me. That's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said was, hey, I want you to go up to an upper room and I want you to stay there until uh, the Holy Spirit comes. And they went away into an upper room somewhere and they kind of sequestered themselves away, not unlike what we're going through now, where we're kind of sequestered in our homes, just kind of hanging out and hiding out. That's pretty much what the disciples did for about two months. Um, that's how long they stayed away, two months. Um, they, they stayed away from the time of the resurrection to, uh, you know, two months later, the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples and you have the day of Pentecost. Um, not two years, uh, two months. And, and two months later, the Holy Spirit comes down and these apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to preach and teach the resurrected Christ. Again, this isn't two years later just a couple of months after the fact. And they're saying, Christ is risen from the dead. We, we saw him. <laughs> we saw him. He appeared to us. And, and all of a sudden, the superstition of Christianity that everybody thought was over springs to life and it starts to spread like crazy. Not in Europe. Not in the Middle East. Right in the city of Jerusalem where the event happened. Now, here's why that's important. If two months after someone had been crucified, people started saying that Jesus rose from the dead, Jewish leaders and the Roman government are going to say, come here, here's the dead body of Jesus. You need to stop talking about this resurrection thing because it never happened. We've got the dead body. The story of the resurrection of Jesus wasn't myth. It wasn't a fable. It wasn't a fairy tale. It wasn't something that was developed over decades or, 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 or you know, many, many years. This happened during a time when there were eyewitnesses that were able to either say yay or nay to it. Paul believed it. James believed it. Tacitus points to it. He says something happened during that time. Eyewitnesses were alive, and it began to change Judaism in Jerusalem, and it made its way to Rome. Now, what does all of that mean? You have to determine what caused that. How do you explain something like that? The Bible has a simple explanation for all of it. Um, the Apostle Paul is in Rome, and he spent a lot of time in Rome. Uh, and guess who the emperor was when Paul is, is in Rome as a prisoner chained to a Roman guard? Uh, the, the emperor was Nero. Uh, Paul is captive in Rome. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's receiving guests, he's writing to certain people, uh, writing all these letters. And um, no wonder there is a, an insurgence of Christianity in Rome because Paul is there and Paul is having an incredible influence on the people in this uh, Italian city, Rome. And Tacitus, looking back through Roman records, says that that's exactly what happened. Now let's imagine something together. Let's imagine that tomorrow I want to get on an airplane and I want to fly to the Holy Land, and I want to go to Bethlehem. And so I, I fly to the Holy Land. I get on a bus. 
Um, and I tell the guy, I want you to take me, I want you to take me to Bethlehem. And, and this guy's going to look at me and he's going to say, sir, you, you really do not want to go to Bethlehem. And I would say, oh no, I, I, I do. I really want to go to Bethlehem. And he'd say, listen, I, I just want you to understand that when you get to Bethlehem, it's not going to be what you expect. Bethlehem is now a city that is overrun with refugees. There are soldiers everywhere in the city of Bethlehem. There's a, a lot of unrest. There's a, a, you, you just trust me, you don't want to go to Bethlehem. And I say, oh no, I, I do. I want to go to Bethlehem. I want to see it. I want to be right in the middle of this whole Palestinian, Israeli thing. Uh, so he takes me right into the heart of the city of Bethlehem. I get out and it's as horrible as he said it would be. It's war-torn, it's three miles from Jerusalem, it's a mess. And let's say that I get up on a hillside in the middle of all this mess where there's all these people in this marketplace and I say the following, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Do you think they would stop down? Do you think that people would, would hear me speaking those words and they would stop what they were doing and they would begin to ponder and they would say something like, oh, the answer is here. This is the answer. How relevant in that environment do you think those words would be? And the answer is not very. They would say, come on, man, give us something more substantial than that. Give us something uh, that we can really sink our teeth into. Get the Israelis out of here. Get the Palestinians out of here. Give us food. Give us jobs. Give us peace. And, and what if I went on and I, I said this as well? You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, how well do you think that message would be received? I'm, I'm just telling you, nobody would pay attention to me. Now listen, when, when Jesus showed up on that very piece of ground, that was his message. And when Jesus showed up on that very piece of ground, it was much like it is today. You had two factions who did not get along. They didn't like each other. One felt like they were being completely taken advantage of by the other. And the other just kept wondering to themselves, why won't they just submit to our leadership? It was socially and politically a mess. And Jesus shows up in the middle of all that. And he says, I'm not going to feed you. I'm not going to solve any of your political problems. I'm not going to solve any of your financial problems or your religious problems. I'm not going to create jobs. I just want you to know, hang in there, and when you die, you are going to go to heaven. Now, I know this is going to sound really bad, but it's the truth. Jesus' message was totally irrelevant to what was going on in Palestine in the first century, just like it sounds totally irrelevant for us to go there and say those kind of things to those people in that city right now. You go back and you look at the way Jesus talked and the response of the people, even the disciples sometimes, when they heard some of the things that Jesus said, half the time they didn't understand what he was saying, and um, half the time they, they, they dismissed it because it just didn't make any sense to them. Uh, why in the world would people follow that? He didn't offer peace. 
He didn't offer money. He didn't offer jobs. He didn't offer to get the Romans out of the city. He didn't offer anything practical. What he offered was, believe in me and you will go to heaven when you die. Now, why would people suddenly leave what they have believed for centuries and embrace that? And it is historically undeniable that that's what they did. Why would Romans embrace that? Here's why that's so important. Because what the early Christians embraced and what the Romans embraced was not a teaching or a philosophy. Those people did not die for a teaching or a philosophy. They believed in the person Jesus, that he himself was the king. And and when they tortured the Roman Christians, they said, deny your faith. They didn't say give up the teaching. They didn't say give up the philosophy, not abandon the philosophy or the the, the teachings of Jesus. Uh, We want you to say that Nero is the king. And they said, oh, no, no, Jesus is my king. And they put Christians to death by the thousands because they would not come off of that idea that Jesus was their ultimate king, not because of a teaching not because of a philosophy. Christianity would have never gotten past one generation of disciples had there not been something to substantiate the claims of Christ in the first century. His philosophy and his teachings in in many ways were not really all that unique. In some ways, it wasn't even practical. What What you have to ask yourself is, why did they follow Jesus? And why was there an insurgence of Christianity after his death? And the answer is, because of the miracles of Jesus. See, it's one thing for Jesus to say, um, turn the other cheek. It's quite another thing for Jesus to say, rise and walk. It's one thing for Jesus to say, blessed are the peacemakers. It's quite another thing to say, hey, go show yourself to the Pharisees, and on the way, your leprosy is going to be healed, and it's going to be gone. It's one thing to say, I can explain what God is like. It's quite another thing to say, Lazarus, come forth out of the grave. It wasn't the teachings of Jesus that kept the crowds coming back time after time. But, but you show me somebody who can pick up a wounded child and heal that child, and I'll show you somebody with a following. I don't care how irrelevant your message is, if you can do things like that, you're going to gather people around you. If you're someone who doesn't take Christianity seriously, if you're someone who would say, you know what, I'm a skeptic, I don't believe all this stuff, Um, I think this is all just myth and fairy tale, okay, but it is incumbent upon you to try to figure out a way to explain what we've talked about this morning. And you can't just back all this up two generations and say that a bunch of other people made it up and slapped their name on it because that is really lazy scholarship and it it isn't being honest about the evidence. Um, You can't just walk away from it like that. Even secular history tells us that something happened in this culture and it was significant. What drew people to Jesus was who he claimed to be And people went to their death saying, Jesus, not Caesar, not Nero, Jesus is our king. And he is the one that we are going to follow. I don't care what he taught. I saw him raised from the dead, and that is enough for me. And that is why they persecuted Christians all throughout the first century. That's why they persecuted Christians in the the centuries that followed that. Listen. That's vastly different 
than, than what you get in all of the other world religions. Um, all the other world religions have something along the lines of a, of a prophet of some kind who says, uh, God told me something, I wrote it down, and you need to believe in me. That isn't what you get when you come to the Gospels. Jesus said, I'm not going to be a testimony uh, to myself. You be a testimony to who you believe that I am. And Matthew said, I saw it, and I believe it. Mark said, I talked to, Pete, to uh, Peter, and he told me about it, and I believe it. John said, I was an eyewitness. I saw Jesus. I believe it. Luke said, I interviewed a bunch of people. I've heard what they had to say. I wrote it down, and I believe it. Paul said, I've talked to enough people who saw it and believed it. I had an encounter with Christ myself. I believe it. James said, I believe it. And thousands of Roman citizens in that generation, uh, a generation that would have had plenty of eyewitnesses said, Nero is no longer our king. Jesus is our king, and we're willing to die for it. How do you explain that if there weren't miracles? How do you explain that without a resurrection? And how do you explain that if something supernatural didn't occur? Look, I know it's hard to believe this stuff, okay? We don't see stuff like this. We, we don't see miracles. We've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Uh, we don't see things like that. But our faith is not in faith alone. We believe in history, testimony, witnesses that have been substantiated over and over throughout the centuries after the resurrection. These are reliable books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the things about which they write really happened. What they say about Jesus is true, and if it's true, then he is the Son of God. Jesus came into this world, and he made a very exclusive claim. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, I know that's narrow. Uh, I know that that is politically incorrect to say something like that. But Jesus says, this is who I am. And it's here that somebody is tempted to say, see, Brett, that, that's why, um, that's the part of this that I just can't deal with. That's the part of this where, where it, Jesus just gets so narrow that I can't put my faith in him because of a claim like that. Uh, they would say, it just seems so unfair. And here's my response, and I mean this with all respect. It may not be fair, but it's true. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you determine what is true by what is fair. You don't determine what is true by what is fair. There are a lot of things that are true that are not necessarily fair. And if you would like for me to illustrate that for you, I would invite you, whenever it comes time for you to do your taxes the next time, uh, to just sit down and write a friendly letter to your IRS man, and you say, Dear IRS man, um, I just want to declare that um, I don't think that the tax code as it is currently written is fair, and so therefore I don't think it's true that I owe you this amount of money that you say that I owe you. Uh, see, true and fair don't always line up. The question isn't, is Christianity fair? The question is, is it true? And if it's true, it demands faith in the Savior of mankind. You know, the, the person who would say Christianity isn't fair, not fair, here's what I know. Everybody's invited. Everybody gets in the same way. 
and the price has already been paid. How is that not fair? Everybody's invited. Everybody uh, gets in the same way, and the price has been paid. What could be fairer than that? That simple message has been preserved for you and me for over 2,000 years. And uh, it's been preserved by eyewitness accounts. Um, you know, Luke interviewed a bunch of witnesses, wrote it down. He passed it on to us. We got information from John, who was an eyewitness. We got information from Matthew, who was an eyewitness, contemporaries of Jesus. Eventually, thousands upon thousands of believers would be found in Rome just 30 years after the resurrection. Eventually, Rome would fall, and the capital of Christendom would become Rome. Now, how do you explain that, if not supernatural power that accompanied the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Next week is Easter, and we will celebrate this thing that Tacitus referred to as our mischievous uh, superstition. We know that it is much more than that. I think that we've made the case very clearly in the last several weeks as to why we can believe what we're told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And next week we will celebrate together the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want to take this opportunity to remind you to invite people to watch. Uh, people may not want to watch a, a worship service online every Sunday, but trust me, on Easter they would probably stop down and watch someone talk about the resurrection. Um, think about who you can invite to watch, maybe even with you. Um, uh, certainly get your family together, and we will meet together next week to consider the thing upon which our whole faith rests, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we love you. We're praying for you in this very difficult time. Uh, I want to pray with you now before we close. Let's pray together. Father, uh, it's a glorious time for us as we consider the resurrection, as we come into this, uh, this you know, the springtime. It just reminds us uh, that things are made new. And when Jesus rose from the grave, everything was made new. Our faith uh, came alive, and now we have uh, just great, great reason to have hope and joy. Even in times like uh, we experience now when things are a little more difficult, Father, we have joy. We have something to look forward to. We know that Jesus loves us. We know that God is with us. And so, Father, may we be the example to a watching world. May we be the ones who are hope-filled. May we be the ones who are encouragers. May we be the ones who are generous to others. May we be the ones who have hope in our answer, and the answer is Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving him to us, for giving us books preserved to help us to know about him so that our faith is bolstered and our faith is, bolstered and our faith is strong. Father, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.